Hi, this is Andy, and thank you for joining me for the Next Stage Radicals podcast, where each month I'm joined by a Next Stage Radical, someone who is hands-on in the work of discovering new and better ways of working, challenging the conventions of Management 1.0 in order to move the world of work to the next stage. In each episode, I invite my guests to share their warts and all stories about what works and what doesn't, and what it's taking for them to make work work better. This month's radical is Jose Leal. Jose started his first business at age 16. In his 20s, he co-founded Canada's first automotive media portal. After 10 years with the media company that acquired it, though, he quit as VP. Corporate life had taught him how not to collaborate. And so for nearly six years, Jose's focused on understanding human nature and collaboration, which is in essence what brought us into contact with each other. Jose was one of the first people to reach out when um, I founded Next Stage Radicals. And I have to say the last year and a half, two years of knowing him has been one of the greatest pleasures of my life. So I'm really delighted to have him on the podcast today. Jose, welcome to the Next Stage Radicals podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure. Um, shall we just get straight into it? Uh, well, I just wanted to say thank you for inviting. And um, it has been a pleasure as well, working with you and thinking and talking with you over the last year. Thank you, Jose. Well, um, we're going to dial people into our chats today and uh, they can Let's decide talk. whether it's a pleasure for them to. <laughs> um, so, you know where I wanted to start, Jose? Um, my question number one to kick us off is what's your radical idea or vision? This is a hard one. Uh, and I've, I've heard a few podcasts, so I know everybody sort of stumbles on this one because you, it's hard to sort of consolidate um, what you do into a few words. But I, I think it, it really comes down to three key things. Um, the first is that the future of work community has really been focused on the symptoms rather than the fundamental disease, if you will, uh, the, the fundamental issue. And, and I think we're all guilty of that in some way. Uh, I certainly have been. Uh, and I think the second is that we've failed to see that we're living in a paradigm of force. It's a paradigm that uh, we've built up because we think that human nature isn't what human nature is. So we see people as lazy, as stupid, as this, that, and the other. And so we have to create systems to force them to do things. And so the first issue, we're trying to deal with all of the symptoms, things like um, organizational structures and policies and processes. And that's what we've been trying to tackle in, in the future of our community. But really that aspect comes from the fact that we've already instilled this force paradigm in people and people are just waiting to be told what to do because we've been telling them what to do all along. So that force paradigm, I think, is the fundamental cause of the problem we have. And, and number three, I think the solution to the problem stems from understanding that we are human beings with human needs. Psychology has known for over a hundred years that we have 
human needs by many names. So, the, you know, human needs or um, instincts or motivations, and the, the list goes on. But however you label them, however you describe them, what it is, is we essentially have these mechanisms in us that help guide our behavior. And when we don't have meaning in our lives, when we are not able to see an impact from our actions, when we're not able to find a group that we belong to, when we're not able to grow and, and become who we're capable of becoming, then yeah, we do become people who need to be told what to do. So it's this weird paradigm of, of a situation where society has used force to control us and we have become lost in it because we don't have the things that guide us. And so that's as succinct as I can be. So I know yeah. that's not very succinct, but that's what I think is radical about uh, how we think about uh, the future work. That's cool. Well, I, I love it. And I, I mean, we've had many conversations about this, so I'm going to push you to um, sort of explode that out a bit even, because I think, and, and push back if you feel I've got you pegged wrong here, but I, I think when you say that, um, some of our listeners might hear that through the lens of the, the things that I think you are critiquing to some extent, like command and control styles of work or those sorts of things. But I think you're also talking there about a shift um, in how we might go about creating the future away from some of the typical tropes of new ways of working. So I, I know that you're connected to work around self-management and other things like that, but I, 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 I'm hearing in your words and from some of our past conversations, um, a point of difference as well in terms of not just what we need to change, but how we need to go about manifesting that future of work. Am I right? Am I missing something? No, you're absolutely right. I think it starts with reframing what the future of work really is. Um, the future of work isn't simply um, adjusting the deck chairs, right? That's not what we need to do. We don't need to simply move the captain down from wherever the, it is that the captain sits and move him down onto the main deck. That's not the point, because um, that doesn't change anything, uh, in my opinion. What we need to do is reframe what are issues within the work environment and really society at large. And, and to reframe those means that we start to see the problem from a different perspective. And the perspective that we see it now is that, that those symptoms of the problem, the organizational structures, hierarchies and things, um, I'm not a proponent of those things, but they're not the problem, mm. right? They just, they emerge from the root problem. Uh, and so as we go around simply uh, trying to say that these things are wrong and putting focus on them and trying to get people to change them, when they're not changing them from a framing that works, then we end up creating more trouble than solving problems. Mm -hmm. yeah. Does that make sense? I'm not sure that that answers your question. It makes sense to me. So um, uh, yeah, it's good. I, I'm tempted to ask you for an example then of um, where have you seen well-intended actions that are seeking to change something but you but you sort of perceive it as 
addressing the symptom or, or not quite getting to the root of what you feel needs to happen? So, well, there, a big one comes to mind, but it's not related to exactly what I, I just said. Uh, but I'll use the big one because I think it's a, it's a, a very strong fundamental one that us as a community and the future of work haven't really tackled. We've been uh, trying to deal with self-management um, from a standpoint of uh, allowing people to have um, more control over what they do and how they do it and so forth. And still we are tied to this um, model of work that people are employed. So even when we have uh, employees that are quote unquote self-managed, they're still hireable and fireable. So talk about psychological safety, right? When we set up a situation where individuals are being told you have every right to do whatever it is you can, it's, it's all self-managed, here's the rules, you know, follow the rules within that, those rule sets, you can do what you want. Um, oh, and by the way, at any time, I can pull the rug out from underneath you, right? If the company isn't doing well, I'll let you go. If we decide to close this division, I'll let you go. If whatever it is, I, can, I have the power to let you go. That's not a, an environment where individuals really have a sense of safety and a sense of, of meaning because they're always looking over their shoulder. So that's a fundamental problem that exists that we haven't addressed at all, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so some of the community have said, okay, yeah, we, we want to have people engaged, not as employees, but as partners. And we're starting down that path, but holistically, we're still trying to find, um, I shouldn't say holistically, but, but as a, a broader community, we're still trying to find solutions within the current paradigm. And employment in my book is force. Right? I was just going to ask you that because I think that brings me back around to what you've introduced us to there in terms of the force paradigm so so I think that reframes it in quite a meaningful way it's not just command and control management it, it's something much deeper something I, I think sort of more global maybe in terms of how society structured not just how work structured or am I picking up the wrong thread there no it's absolutely how society is structured and but in many ways I think it was helped by how, how work was structured. We became, we, uh, I tend to say we generalize things a little too much, but um, as people moved away from working in farms and agriculture and small communities and were asked and forced <laughs> in many ways by economic situations to move into working in factories and so forth, um, there needed to be that force in order to cause them to work because they didn't just wake up in the morning and go feed the chickens and, and, and till the land. The, those things were natural to them. They, that Their parents had done it and they do it and it made sense to them. Without doing it, they wouldn't have food and it, and it worked out. But now all of a sudden they have to be in at eight o'clock in the morning. They had never woken up to an alarm clock and they had never checked in to you know a, a time uh, check um, at work. So all of those things kind of created 
a society that's based on that because mm-hmm. the society had not been based on that. Um, and so I think work is a, is a great place to start to help change our society in the right direction because it was the place that many of these uh, practices became uh, embedded in humanity mm-hmm. was through work in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with that. And I guess what I'm reading into your words there, Jose, is um, to some extent, the force paradigm perhaps um, comes about and is sustained because we're we're trying to do something unnatural or I, I, I'm not sure whether you'd agree with that or not. Go on, talk to me about what's natural in the role of the force paradigm there. Yeah, it was definitely unnatural in that what we're seeking to do is to motivate people in a way that they're not naturally motivated, right? Uh, our, our natural motivations are these needs that I spoke about earlier, right? Um, when we see something in the world that is meaningful to us, then we're naturally attracted to it and we want to deal with it, whatever the case may be. We wanna make it better. We wanna make, if we see someone that's um, suffering, we wanna make them feel better. That's our tendency, right? I live here in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley, and I can't go downtown San Jose or downtown San Francisco without walking across dozens and dozens of homeless people. And my heart pours out to them as as I see them, you know, injecting themselves and and struggling in the streets uh, with alcohol and and, uh, drug addictions and so forth. But our system prevents us all from getting engaged, right? It's, it's, it's not that we don't know what the right thing is. We feel it. Mm. It's that we're unable to do anything about it because we've been removed from that ability to take what is meaningful to us and act on it. It's, again, not our job right? It, it's been taken away from us. It's, it's the job of the police or it's the job of the city or it's the job of the, some, some other group is supposed to be taking care of this. So we become disconnected. We cannot have meaning uh, with things that we find important mm. because we're not allowed to have that relationship with things, be it individuals in the street or our environment at work, right? And so that's the unnatural part about it. It's keeping us from acting on those desires, those needs to do things about what's wrong. And most of us see things wrong, but we aren't allowed to act. Stay in your lane, right? At work, stay in your lane, do your role. That's not your job. That's That's somebody else's role to do. So don't step on other people's toes. Um, and that's not our nature. Our nature is it's broken, we fix it. Someone's suffering, we help them. Um, but we learned that when we're young at school, right? You know, it's like one of the kids is um, struggling, is having a difficult day due to something at home or whatever the case may be. And the teacher says, no, stay away from that individual. 
we'll, I'll help them. You know, you guys just do your homework, just do your thing. And everyone is sitting there thinking, oh, I want to go hug them. I want to help them, but they're unable to do so. So we learned this early that force keeps us away from doing the things that we are motivated to do. Gone down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but no, no, I'm I'm really with you. Um, and I, I'm reading into it. There's kind of a tendency, perhaps, to industrialize and proceduralize and and so on. I suspect at some point in the evolution of all of that, with an intention to be able to meet meet those needs you mention at greater and greater levels of scale. But I think what you're saying is in so doing we're sort of cutting ourselves off somewhat from our humanity or, or from those interdependencies or, or well yeah i mean interdependencies is the right word because those those needs evolved as the way that we interact with one another hmm. and so when we aren't allowed to interact in normal ways then we have reactions to that inability to react in normal ways, mm -hmm. which cause other problems, mm -hmm. right? So if, if uh, I'll try an example here, I don't know if it'll work, but if I'm a, a coworker and I see that you're struggling with something, but I, in the back of my head, I know that if I step in, I'll be told that that's not my job, that's HR's job, or it's the manager's job or something like that. Uh, then I'll be perceived by that person because their needs would be for me to step in and help. I'd be perceived by that person as not being someone willing to help. And that starts destroying our relationship. So now we don't have that level of belonging that we should have because the urge was to help, but that, that force paradigm causes us not to. Yeah, yeah. Right, because we shouldn't get involved. We shouldn't be this and that and the other, yeah. and so that's really where the the natural flow of things are disrupted, causing a lot more trauma than the actual disruption itself, because yeah. it distorts behaviors beyond yeah. the the this. Uh, I think that's a really helpful example, and you you just triggered two thoughts for me, so. Uh, when you first started giving the example, I was thinking, you know, it's the old um, uh, infantilizing of each other. You know, it's you know that's not your job because the big boys and girls will deal with it kind of thing. But actually, the, the thought that went through my head then was it's actually worse than infantilizing because when we're an infinite, we're natural. <laughs> um, so so it's almost more like dehumanizing. And then the next thought that went through my head that really interested in your thoughts on this, but it was have we got to a point where we have so normed that sense of it's not your job that now in the example you gave if i tried to do the human thing and stepped in to support a colleague or to have an honest relationship with a colleague which might be challenging them they might respond with that's not your job absolutely <laughs> absolutely because it's in the back of both of our heads mm right? And we've instilled in each other these, these norms of what can be done and what cannot be done. And so um, when we try to help each other, often the intellectual side steps in and says, well, that's not your role. Mm 
that's not your job. That's not what you should be doing because I've been told all my life that that's not what you should be doing. When in reality, I want you to, and in reality, you want to. But we're both preventing ourselves from doing it. Yeah. And, and that comes from being forced to break out of those natural norms. Right. And it back to the, the example in the classroom, it starts early. Right. Yeah. Don't touch each other. Don't talk to each other. Don't help each other with homework. Don't help each other with the, the classwork. You know, there's all these things that that drive us apart from one another yeah and our nature is to collaborate there is no doubt about that the question is how have we gotten lost in collaboration to the point where we need to do it again we need to learn to do it again in a way that we've never done it before because we've not been permitted to do it most of our lives yeah and that that does bring me back round to in a sense, the top of the conversation where my my um, my understanding of of what you're saying here is much is as much a challenge to how we're trying to do the future of work as how we've done the history of work. Because I think what I'm hearing in what you're saying there about collaboration as an example is um, our most common tendency, and I, I'd point the finger at myself here too, is to think, well, what um, cool new tools and techniques can we plug in here to um to engender this change but I, I think what i'm hearing is part of the problem is that we're always mediating our human to human contact with tools and rules and techniques and when maybe it's it's the abstract thing that's mediating us that we need to get out of the way is that right yeah it is and and i think the rules, so I like to say that what we need is more tools actually, okay. and less rules. And the, the difference between the tools that I'm talking about and the tools you've just mentioned is that these are tools that help support our needs rather than tools that we use to maintain the force paradigm. Most of the tools are actually rules. Mm -hmm. So we, we create a piece of software, we create a little system of, of, of doing things, and that's really to reinforce the rules. That's what the most of our tools are, right? They're there to uh, make actionable the rules. Okay. Right? So we set up a rule, we say, this is the way it's gotta be done, and then we create a tool that reinforces that set of rules. And on the other hand, when we create tools for ourselves, and they're not based on rules, but they're based on collaboration and agreement, then they become meaningful to us. Because something we all hate is rules. There's a reason why we all hate rules, right? It's because it's not in our nature but we're willing to agree with one another that we're going to do things in a certain way. Mm. And you would, a lot of people would say, well, that's a rule, isn't it? No, absolutely, it's not a rule. It's something we've come together and acknowledge that that's the approach that we should take in a certain context, but we have not imposed it on each other. We've imposed it on ourselves. 
And that's the difference. When we impose something on ourselves, then we're okay to go with it. And actually, we make that commitment and we wish to honor that commitment. And sometimes we can't. And that's just the reality. But when we can honor it, we feel good about it. And when we don't, we feel bad about it. And we go about finding ways to make it up to people because we've not honored our commitment. Mm. But when it's a rule, our system actually likes the idea of breaking the rule. Mm. There's, there's a breaking free of the force paradigm that our system wants to do. And, and so a lot of our behavior is this tension between follow the rules and break the rules. Yeah, yeah. And when we get rid of rules in that context, in that way, and we start looking at these things as tools that we own, that we co-create and we adopt willingly, then we don't need things to be on top of us. There are things that we have between us. Yeah, that resonates and it, it feels like it points the way to some of the, uh, without wanting to sort of speak ill of the, the well-intended work in new ways of working, it, it, some of the failures of attempts at new ways of working that um, I'm sure we've all got our own examples, but certainly I've seen examples of organisations where a team has felt um, felt fully able to author their own uh, agreements, codes of conduct, whatever it may be, but but they're they're being generated from within those people in an authentic interaction. But having worked it out for team A, the answer is then how do we just get team A to do what team B did rather than <laughs> appreciating that team B need to do, you know, their version of that process. Um, is that in the direction you're pointing? Absolutely. And, and yeah, it, it's, that's what happened with Agile, mm. right? The Agile movement started with a lot of what I'm describing here. They didn't use this language, but really it was the same. It was give individuals freedom to interact with one-on-one -on -one, and they'll find the right answers to questions on the basis of these needs, mm. right? And they'll they'll create their tools, and they'll. But what we've done is systematize those tools and impose those tools, mm. so they've become rules again. We don't allow people to sit down and work out how they want a, an agile environment for themselves. We impose an agile environment on them. Mm. So again, now folks are in this force paradigm where they're trying to work in an environment and they're trying to follow the rule of what needs to happen in, that, in an agile environment. Not because they feel that that's what they want in an agile environment, because they haven't been given the time to come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. Simply that they need to follow the set of rules that some coach brought about and is instilling into that group. Mm -hmm. And that's that's just part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that they're still surrounded by even if they really adopt that themselves and internalize it and seek to be in an agile group, they're still surrounded by a paradigm of force all around them. All the other departments are still uh, typically not agile. 
and they still have deadlines and they still have you know requirements lists and all of these kinds of things that are um, you know around the organization that may or may not be fully uh, agile um, in a true sense and so it's these things are compounded by all these layers right and they're still employees and so therefore there's still that this sense of I need to watch my back or else I'm going to get fired. So all of this stuff just compounds on top of each other. So that's why I say it's the root of the issue is, is the force paradigm. Because it, it manifests itself in so much of what we do. And again, how I'm, how I'm hearing that, I'm almost telling myself an evolutionary story, if you like, here where... Um, you know, person A and person B start off by having a really good human to human conversation and they invent a little technique. And then person C comes in and they think, oh, we'll just use that same technique with them because that'll work. And, you know, not too many generations along, those things have calcified and they've become institutional. And now nobody knows who created them. Nobody knows who owns them. And we, we end up in service to the rules rather than in service to each other. Um, again, I don't know if I'm over-interpreting, but it, it seems to me like you can see how quickly those well-intended tools slide into just being how it works around here and nobody owns it. And before you know it, we've got the, the fatalistic, well, I can't change the system because the system's bigger than me. Um, I, I think I would agree with the fact that that's probably how it came about. I don't know how much good intention I would apply on some of those things, because yeah. I think that there are uh, a lot of aspects that are really um, power plays, right? Um, I'm the owner of the company and I get to make the rules around here and I want to maximize my profit. So therefore I want to minimize your freedom in order to maximize my, my profit. And so um, those little practices, I think, yes, evolved much that way as you describe, but I also think that we allowed for there to be, we as, as humanity allowed for there to be individuals that had so much power that we were willing to give them the right to um, imprison us in environments that were not appropriate for humans. And it's become that much better over the last century or two, where we're no longer working seven days a week, we're no longer working 12 hour days and all of those other kinds of things. And, and it, our, most of our jobs are no longer physically dangerous and so forth. Um, so we've been improving things. We had sort of the pinnacle of the worst about a hundred years ago and, and things have become better and better and better and better. Now we're at the point where the, the things that we need to fix are no longer physical because the physical ones were kind of easy to identify and easy to, to correct. Um, these are, are human behavioral motivational issues, which we, cannot, the average person does not identify easily. And so that's where it becomes a lot more difficult because we're not pointing to something tangible, right? We can't say, oh, that ladder is unsafe. We need to fix the ladder. We'll not work here unless the ladder is fixed. Um, it's our meaning 
our need for meaning is not being met. Mm. And so there is no way that I'm going to be truly motivated to do this work unless I understand what it is that I'm doing and I can, am connected to why I'm doing it. Mm. And that's a question that most of us don't get answered because yeah. we're so many layers away from where meaning really happens that that causal chain of meaning gets broken all the way across the organization yeah. and so we we are not in touch with that and that's what motivates us and when we lose motivation we lose our ability to really make the impact we seek to make so i'm intrigued then with you saying that things got better and better and better because i'm wondering I guess I'm wondering, looking at you, whether you mean that or whether you mean that in exactly the way I first heard it, because I, I, I think, um, I, guess, I guess what I'm wondering is better and better and better on certain dimensions, but if that's been a journey towards calcifying an approach in which there is the evaporating off of meaning, um, is that really better at all? No, it's it's not better uh, in 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 some ways there was more meaning when you were able to look at a hole in the ground and go I made that hole today hmm. and and it took me twelve hours and I had a pickaxe and my back is broken and I'm thirsty and I'm hungry and all of those other things and I'm physically um, damaged. Um, but at least I understood that I made a hole in the ground. And as we've moved away from that, and now I'm five, five layers of people away from seeing the hole in the ground, I just draw the plans <laughs> that somebody else creates the tool, that somebody else creates the work order, that somebody else does the work. Mm. I don't even see the hole in the ground, mm. right? I'm using the hole in the ground as an example because here in San Jose, um, they do um, they they fix the uh, cable and internet cables that run under the sidewalks all the time, and so what they do is they tear up the sidewalk, they fix the thing, they patch up the sidewalk, and then a month later they come by, they tear up the sidewalk, fix the thing, and bury it again. And speaking to uh, the workers that were out there they take pleasure in being able to do that work because they're connected to it, right? They, they removed that impediment to fixing the problem. They found the problem, they corrected it, they buried it again. Now, all the craziness of digging and burying aside, um, they're connected to it and it's difficult, hard work. But when we create work where we don't have that meaning, which has been going up on the upswing. So to your point, I think you're very correct, which is we've become less connected to our impact, less connected to meaningfulness, less connected to one another uh, through that process. Though physically, uh, we've improved our lives immeasurably over the last hundred years. So it's, it's hard to see because we see the physical part we don't see the disconnection and we don't see the meaninglessness and the lack of impact. All of that's kind of uh, harder for us to pinpoint. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I've got a personal sort of lived experience of 
this that comes to mind, which was um, so rewinding the clock more than 20 years when I used to run restaurants and bars. And um, when I left that industry, one of the things that I remember feeling really acutely was the loss of that um, immediate gratification that you could get in that industry of, you know, there is a happy diner that's got a smile on their face that's paid a tip and you know you did a good job. And then, you know, I was in uh, local authority and healthcare services uh, and I was in a management role was one part. So I was, you know, one step removed anyway, but, but also some of the, some of the things that we were trying to enable and support in those organizations, you weren't going to get the immediate gratification anyway. You know, some of them were big social issues. So it was quite, I, I can both feel it, but I can also see the challenge that maybe there are certain types of work where getting that meaning is less immediate or something. I mean, have you got any thoughts on that? I, I call it a causal chain of meaning. And, and that is not everybody can be at the front lines, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in the restaurant business, I've never really, other than in high school, no, I've never really worked in a restaurant business, but you know, there are people in the back, there are cooks that don't see the, you know, that, that uh, happy diner. Um, and there, I believe there are ways to get people to be more connected in that process, right? To get the cook out, mm. right? To get the bartender out from behind the bar and, and going and seeing people when, when it's a restaurant scenario. Um, to, to allow people that are often behind the scenes or layers up in the process to uh, in, engage them in what's making a difference in the difference they're making in people's lives. Mm. Um, there's, there are many ways to do this, but they're not, and, and people would like to, right? I believe that a cook would love to see someone enjoying their food. But we, we, we look at efficiency and, and look at roles and your job is not to talk to people and your job is not to do this and your not, job is not to do that. And we prevent those things from happening. They're not so difficult to bring about. Okay? Um, the idea, there's a, a, a cooperative here in, in the Bay Area, Arismati uh, Bakeries. And um, first of all, they're all co-owned. So they're, they're, they're not employees. So mm-hmm. that's one huge difference. The other is that they rotate through jobs. This week you might be doing customer service. Next week you might be doing uh, working the cash register. Um, tomorrow you might be uh, needing dough. Um, and, and you get to pick these things and, and organize these things with each other because they know that it becomes routine and it becomes not fun anymore. But it, they also know that there's pleasure in actually producing the bread and there's pleasure in actually seeing customers happy to, to take that bread. So being able to cross-pollinate those experiences gives them that continuous meaning and they don't become the cog in the wheel that is disconnected from the rest of the machine, right? Their cogs are inside machines, 
right? And they're stuck there. They don't get to touch the surface of the machine. They don't get to actually interact with the product that they're doing. And that's what most of us do, right? And most large organizations, we're the cogs inside the machine and we don't actually get to touch the customer or, or the imp to see the impact that we make in, in human lives or in natural settings. And therefore we can destroy things because again, we don't see it. We can create all kinds of disruptions because again, we don't are not part of that process and therefore that meaning isn't there for us. We can all drive by a place and see a destruction of some form and, and feel, wow, how have we allowed that piece of land to be destroyed in such a way? And we feel that pain. Again, it's not our problem. Therefore, you know, we don't even try to fix it. But the people that created it was, were people in organizations that are not connected to that piece of land. They've probably never seen it. They don't know what they've done in many, in many cases. It, if at all, it's just on a list of properties that they now have to fix in some way as per the rules of the government and so on and so forth. So there's that, that it becomes, it becomes a different type of problem, right? It's just yeah. on a list and we need to find a way to solve that problem yeah, yeah. rather than recognizing it, that there is meaning in what has, what we've created. And it, I mean, I, I don't know if I quite have this, but it seems to me maybe a part of what you're saying here is that um, in the same way that we can make ourselves subordinate to tools that are about implementing rules, um, maybe, maybe there's something going on here as well, which is that um, we've normalized that the role of individuals within institutions is to serve institutions when actually really the point of institutions was to serve people <laughs> if that makes any sense um, yeah it, it's hard to know what came first the chicken or the egg in that one because most of the corporations that emerged uh in the world were corporations that were used to apply force in foreign countries. Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so they weren't designed to serve, um, yeah. Right, so um, organizations that were small groups of people that were doing work in communities, blacksmiths and, and dairy farms and things like that, where um, individuals are coming together and we're, we're serving the community and whatever they were doing. Those types of organizations were traditionally not legally bound in any way, right? They, they were just a group of individuals and would you like to come work for me? Would you like to uh, apprentice with me? And, the, and those types of things emerged in a very human way, right? And many of those uh, apprentices spent half their lives apprenticing uh, in order to take over the, for the job of the person who, who taught them. Um, institutions in the form of, of uh, corporations were really a way to uh, create monopoly. 
uh, initially. And so you have a, a corporation that comes out of England that has the right to all of Canada's um, pelts and so on and so forth, right? Um, the Hudson Bay Company, right? And so those were created as a way of, of extraction and force. And, and so I think that has a lot to do with how we see corporations after the fact. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it really speaks to me that because I, what I'm, I suppose what I'm trying to scratch away at here, because I, I know from our conversations is there's something really quite fundamentally different, but quite hard to pin down, I think, in what you're saying, which, um, and I still don't quite have it, but it's something in here around how the institutions as conventionally manifest, at least, speak more to a domination need than a coordination need. But I think what you described in those sort of organically created um, ways of organizing that communities might have is that we recognize there's a value in us being coordinated. And that's a human to human sort of, um, it's a relational infrastructure, isn't it? Rather than a technocratic infrastructure. So I think what I'm hearing is the force paradigm to some extent exists in the way in which we've um, manifest ways of being and in institutionalizing things that, that are, are kind of um, serving a domination need first rather than helping humans meet their needs. Yeah, well, it they're there to serve the investors, right? They're there to serve scale. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the priorities. Um, and so I, I think the domination, the force aspect of it um, is a fundamental part of how those organizations are structured. Um, what I was describing earlier as far as how these uh, small community businesses emerge, I think that's natural collaboration. And there's issues there too. Nothing is a panacea, but what they are is natural human needs-based ways of coming together rather than um, imposed from on high, and it's not so much the problem that's on high, it's that the, the rules that are imposed from on high are in of themselves disconnected from the problem that they're trying to, to solve, mm -hmm. right? We're seeking to grow, we're seeking to get market share, we're seeking to get profits in this market that we see an opportunity in, but the opportunity isn't solving the problem, the opportunity is to make the, the profit. Right, right. And those are two different disconnect, right? We see that there's an opportunity and we, we convince ourselves that that opportunity is an opportunity to make money uh, because we can solve some problem, but we get lost in the making of the money and lose the sight of the problem. Yeah, yeah. And then we cut corners on how to solve the problem. I.e. healthcare in the United States. I read an article this morning about one large hospital chain 
who uh, sued 16,000 patients over COVID bills last year for as little as $219. Wow. And our legal systems, they show up or don't show up in the courts as, as the case may be without lawyers. And our legal systems, well, you're not represented and you didn't show up, so therefore you lost the case. And now you also have to pay for the hospital's legal bills. So you, you couldn't pay for your health bills, but now you have compounded it with that. And so they're garnishing people's um, paychecks because they couldn't afford to pay for the COVID bills and they now can't afford to pay for the legal bills. Mm -hmm. So this is a hospital that's a system of hospitals that's there to help people get healthier. Does that make any sense? How, how have we lost track of that? Yeah. What meaning is there in this? Yeah, for sure. Um, cart before the horse, um, writ large, isn't it? So, um, so I think, I think I'm clearer on the nature of the issues, um, but there's real complexity, and nuance, I think, in there. And yet, at the, at the same time, I think there's also a version of this which is, in some sense, is quite sort of straightforward not complex it's about human needs and human relationships and these sorts of things but i guess what i'm interested in uh, hearing from you is so what what's the point of intervention or what are the points of intervention how do you start to do something to act on this perspective you're sharing well the first is to, to recognize that we are in such a paradigm right that this paradigm that we live in for the most part isn't recognized we haven't named it we haven't seen it for what it is and recognizing that a lot of the things that we've been trying over the years in the future of work space myself and others included um, have been actually supporting that paradigm rather than trying to to find a new paradigm and so it's, it's really looking at force paradigm and the needs paradigm and being able to see that even with new tools that we've emerged over the last little while, that those tools are still within the force paradigm. And if, and if the force paradigm is the fundamental issue, creating new tools within it will simply keep it along, around longer. Mm. And so we need to really find ways to um, detect when we're in the force paradigm and um, establish new ways of working in the needs paradigm. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Um, so we're, we're working, uh, radical is, in developing a, um, an assessment tool to help people understand their needs. Uh, we're developing a, uh, what we call it, for now, we're calling a meta tool for understanding, are we inside uh, a, a, the force paradigm? Is that what we're dealing with in this context when we're trying to address things? And um, working with some folks um, in, in Belgium and, uh, and Brazil around a collaborative 
So what does a collaborative look like? A new form of organization where we're all owners. Um, we are, we come together from a place of needs, both our own, because what we fail to see is that many of the needs we have is to actually do things. When, when I talk to people about needs, they go, oh, so, you know, it's a selfish thing. Yes, I'm selfish about wanting to make a better world, right? I'm selfish about wanting to save someone's life, or I'm selfish about wanting to make my neighborhood better. These are, that's what our needs are. And so when we're not allowed to take part in helping to make those needs come to, to uh, fruition, then it, it, it unwinds itself. So we need to create environments where we can recognize this in each other, see it in ourselves, and start working with our needs rather than against our needs. Start working with meaning. Start working with making an impact. Focus on the impact, don't focus on the dollars. Many organizations, many individuals have been saying this for years, but what we fail to do is recognize that these are human needs. These aren't simply principles of, oh yeah, making money is good, but you know, it's also good to have this other more blah, blah, blah. No, this is a human need and we don't need a principle for it. We just simply need to follow something we have already been born with. And when we nurture this in each other, then we can make the difference. But we need to get to the point where we can understand this about one another. And so that's what we're doing with the collaborative. We have an agreement that we, we have created that um, is open source that we're publishing out to the public. Um, and it, it starts to lay out some of these things, at least as, as, as we see them for the first time. And, um, and we need help. We need help to understand exactly how to make these agreements. Um, they're based on visual contracts. So it's, it's really a cartoon-like uh, agreement and uh, conscious contracts as well from our colleague, uh, Kim um, Wright. And so all of this is, these are efforts in bringing all of this together to help people discover that they have these needs and discover that they can work from them. Um, because if we don't, if we're not able to show a place to be, we can never leave the force paradigm. Yeah. There needs to be a, a destination and the destination is the needs paradigm where we are serving our needs and those of the people we care for. So I, I should say it occurs to me for listeners benefit. I, I think when I introduced you, I didn't mention radical. So uh, I'll put a link to radical below the podcast for those that are listening, but um, just give us a couple of quick words on radical. So people have the context. Was it uh, radical was a group uh, like many other groups that emerged over the last four or five years of um, individuals around the world that wanted to see a different way of, of working. And we started with a lot of the conversations that we've been talking about today, which is where, what's the fundamental issue, where the, what tools are the right tools. And um, 
initially we, we started to look at developing software. We started looking at creating tools. Um, and then we slowly kept churning through this over the last two or three years and coming to this realization that the fundamental problem is really this force uh, paradigm. And so it's been a learning experience for all of us as we've gone through it to, to not only um, try to create a new future of work, but to recognize that we ourselves are still bound by this, this paradigm of a force. And so it's taken a long time for us to, to change our language. It's taken a long time for us to understand what, what the fundamental issue is. Um, and so that the group has been, you know, it, it coalesced and then it started to sort of uh, disperse and then coalesce again and disperse again as, as things made more meaning for us. Mm -hmm. And, and now we're, we've gotten to a point where we feel confident enough to have a conversation with the world, not just ourselves, mm -hmm. and to expose some of the work that we've done um, to the world to allow people to see that there is something beyond the paradigm we currently live in. Awesome. So, yeah, as I say, I'm going to put some links uh, below the podcast so people can find out more about that. So, um, so you've given us some clues for the ways into how you can start to explore that. And, and you've also talked about the fact that you're doing some of that work. So, um, can you give us just a, a glimpse of, so when you've been doing that, what, what's the stuff that's kind of got you really energized and excited and made you think, yeah, we're making progress here? Or conversely, what's the stuff where it kind of maybe knocks you back a bit and you think, you know, this is hard work? Or, so give well, us a few stories from... Yeah, uh, it's always hard work. <laughs> there's, there's, you know, and... And you have two or three days of thinking we're making some progress and then a day of, oh my gosh, what are we doing here? Nothing's working. Um, but but that's the space that I've always worked in. And so that's nothing new as far as creating something new. That's the space. There is no easy, there is no comfortable, there is no assurance path, right? You've got to discover that path. And you think it's going one direction one day and the next day you think, well, no, maybe it's the other direction. So that process has been um, difficult and, and especially difficult for some of my colleagues because they don't come from that space of, of um, being an entrepreneur and, and sort of discovering things. So it's, it's been especially difficult for them. And, and for that, I apologize. But uh, for for the, the things that we've um, learned and experienced along the way that I think are most beautiful really is that all of our experiences have brought to bear on this journey that we've taken over the last three years. And that is uh, people like Lisa, who's um, been working, um, worked in HR here in the Valley for many, many years in the technology space, who saw the need to do something different, but 
lived in HR for so long that she still sees the world through that lens and, and breaking out of that for herself. Mm -hmm. um, and every day sort of, you know, the, the, the inclination is towards, oh yeah, well, this is the way we do it. And it's like, no, 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 we can't do it that way, right? And we've got to find a different way to think about it in a different way to, to frame it. Um, and, and finding folks that have collaborated with us over the years who have brought so much knowledge about the different movements that are happening around that are tangential to this, right? Um, we've been working on radical purpose for three years. Well, I've been working on it for six years, um, but I had never connected it with nonviolent communications. And, and really the work of, of Marshall uh, Rosenberg is, is absolutely connected to, to this um, uh, meaning and uh, needs paradigm. So it is, it's the discovery process and the, the pieces that everybody brings to it. It's like we've been operating in a collaborative all along and we just didn't know it. Mm -hmm. And so that's been sort of the, the real glorious experience is uh, having all these wonderful people from around the world that, that are passionate about making a difference and none of us see the big picture and all of us bringing our little piece of the puzzle to it and slowly seeing the picture emerge as we bring our pieces of the puzzle. And that has been special. It's been a, a beautiful experience that I think I wouldn't um, miss it for the world. And it's not easy all at the same time, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to bring people together the best of times. It's difficult to do it when you're not operating out of a normal organizational structure where there's mandates and you know goals and all of this stuff um, but that we were able to manifest something out of it as 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 far as we have so far um, I think is a beautiful um, compliment to everyone who's been involved in radical over the last few years yeah yeah absolutely well and I haven't met them all but those that I've met I can say they're a pretty awesome bunch too so um, so that speaks volumes, I would say. Um, cool. So I, I'm going to start to sort of pull us to a close, but maybe just in, in preparation for that, let, let's let's get a sense of, so the world's changed. People have listened to the podcast. They've gone out and made it happen. Um what does the world look like at the end of that? What what would you um, what would we, you wish for us all at the end of that? I think this is going to be a long road, but it's also going to be looking back. It's going to be a fast change. Um, I think that happens for two reasons. One, the speed of change has increased dramatically for all the reasons we know, communication, connectivity, all of that stuff. So I think the change is actually going to happen by historical standards very rapidly. 
and there are pioneers that have been at this for 10, 15, 20 years. So this is not a new thing. Uh, it's just that it's the the uh, the typical thing, you know, overnight success type of thing. Yeah. Um, so what I think is going to happen is that over the next 20, 25 years, um, we will see a tremendous change in how people work. Uh, and what I would hope would happen is that how people work becomes, takes the fragmentation that's been happening in work as, as people have become gig workers and uh, you know independent freelancers and all of that kind of stuff. And they are able to hold on to something that's better than being a gig worker and uh, an independent freelancer, but come together in collaboratives. And this means that they have loosely knit collaboratives that create a fabric that is much more powerful than corporations. Mm. And that as these loosely knit collaboratives come together, they're able to actually displace um, a lot of the things that we now provide to ourselves from a corporate perspective um, through collaboratives. That'll just be the beginning of the tipping point uh, as I see it 20, 25 years. It won't be the end. That will be um, another 50, 75 years ahead of doing that change. But when we look at what has happened in the past, that's pretty quick yeah. to get that kind of change, a tipping point within 25 years. Um, and what I think that really does for us is that it brings us the things that we all seek. It brings us connection to our communities. It brings us meaning into our lives. It makes us able to make an impact in in the lives of people and, and nature in a way that we all seek to do. And we can only do that if um, we do it collaboratively. And so that's that's the vision that I see is our ability to come together and, and create that um, future that is not based on models and frameworks and all that other good stuff. It's based on what we already know to be true. If we listen to our hearts, if we listen to our to what has meaning to us, and we find ways to connect with that meaning with others, then we'll find a way to make that happen. That's awesome. You've reminded me of another conversation I had with uh, Anna Smart, who I think think you may have met along the way somewhere. Another next day's radical, but uh, we were talking about. Um, what's the potential that in another 50 years people look back and say can you believe that they had bosses back then how did they ever let that happen to them um sort of feels somewhat in that direction or am I putting words in your mouth there absolutely not just bosses but even employees mm -hmm. right can you believe that they had employees because a lot of what is being said about the future of work is we don't have bosses, but we are not talking about the fact that they're still employees, right? It's like, we, we, we want to get rid of bosses, but we want to leave all the employees. And I'm saying, no, we don't want employees either, yeah. right? We need people that 
do their work out of the love for what needs to happen, not out of um, the need to have a job. Our, our compensation and our livelihoods come from doing things that we love to do, not the other way around. Horse and cart. Horse and cart, thank you. Yeah. Cool, brilliant. Well, okay, so um, I'm definitely going to pull this to a close now. So uh, you know where I like to end these podcasts. I've got two more questions for you. Um, anyone listening that's thinking, hell yeah, let me ask it. Um, what's your bit of advice from experience you would share with people? What could they do or what would you advise? Um, start looking around your world your environment where you work and start seeing how much force is applied on you. Start recognizing that you need to break free of that force. And, and don't do so by just quitting your job and you know doing all these kinds of reactions to it, but recognize that that's what you're living in. It's in this force paradigm. And that's how we're teaching our children. And that's how we're, uh, you know, creating new jobs is continuously just promoting and, and advancing this force paradigm and start realizing that the feelings you have, the motivations you have for doing certain things, those are not wrong. They're right. They're natural. And that's what you should be following and look into figuring out what are your needs and how do they manifest themselves in you? Because if you can wrap your head around that, you've got the answer. You don't need experts. You don't need gurus. Mm -hmm. um, you've got the answers. You will need to learn to do this, but that's a process, not an answer. No one's gonna give you the template. Mm -hmm. They're just gonna be able to give you pointers for you to go find this for yourself. Yeah, I like that. Um, key to start is to start sort of thing, isn't it? Not to worry exactly. about finishing. Yeah. Um, cool. Thank you, Jose. I, I, as always, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, for listeners, I know I touched on it at the top, but Jose and I have been talking pretty much every Tuesday, roughly, for uh, about a year and a half. And um, actually, in the spirit of the advice you've just given, I think the extent to which I personally feel connected to um you know my purpose if you like my sense of you know what is getting out of bed in the morning about uh, i think much much more for the conversations we've had so thank you for that but but also that's an indicator of i think taking the advice you've given just paying attention to it, it is worthwhile um so um jose just finish up then um if people would like to find out more, so they've got a bit of advice, uh, but if they want to find out more about you, about Radical, um, et cetera, where should they go? Um, can they find you on Twitter or your website or where would I point them? The website's the best place. Uh, we're not really great with promotion. We haven't been. Uh, we're starting that process now that we've gotten to a point where we think we have a message that's clear and hopefully getting clearer. Uh, so radicalpurpose.org is our website. Um, and we're actually doing um, a workshop on June 3rd 
Um, so if it's an overview workshop, it's uh, free and we're just uh, helping people to sort of discover these things and, and have an opportunity to engage in some conversations, a short one hour workshop, but it's a, a good starting point. Uh, we're running a summer series of four workshops as well um, that are covered by this overview. So if people are interested in learning a little bit more about that as well. So it's all on the website and they'll be able yeah. to, to learn more. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you for that. And I know we are planning to do a workshop together as well, aren't we? Uh, I think we penciled in Friday the 9th of July. Um, so uh, that will be our Exploring Aloud webinar for, um, for Jose. So for those of you in the UK, it will be 4 p.m. So I think uh, back to meeting our needs, you might need to turn up with a glass of wine or a bottle of beer 4pm on a Friday, <laughs> but do come and join us. Um, for people stateside, it's a bit earlier in the day, but you know. It's a Friday, you can always start early. Exactly, exactly. Um, cool. Okay, Jose, well, look, thanks as always. Really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Andy. This has been a pleasure, and it's been a pleasure working with you. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections. So please tweet me at Next Radicals or get in touch at nextstageradicals.net. There you'll also find hundreds of posts and podcasts, sketch notes and stories, reports and resources, which Next Stage Radicals like you have shared as they explore what it takes to make work, work better. <laughs>